let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we continue our reflections into the richness of the gospel text. Uh, this Sunday, this 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time, we have the opportunity to engage this topic of the works of the law as it comes to us from Paul's letter to the Church of Galatia, and apply it to a very important gospel, uh, a very important gospel passage that comes to us from Luke chapter 7. So, But before I get into that passage and uh, today's subject matter, I did want to just continue to thank all of you out there for uh, tuning in to Seeds of Truth, and especially those who are uh, listening by way of podcast, who are listening in the countries of Canada and Mexico, uh, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Chile, Italy, Portugal, Spain, France. I do continue to see you on the grid, and I just want to continue to uh, thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me here on Seeds of Truth as we reflect into the richness of the gospel text, as we reflect into the richness of the Christian Catholic faith. And um, if you do have any questions, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. Or you can go to joeholcraft.org, that's spelled J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. You can just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. It really is a joy for me to be able to engage you um, in social media so as to be able to respond to your question and hopefully establish a very real dialogue, a very real conversation, even if it be uh, hundreds of miles apart, if not thousands of miles apart. So... Um, thank you for the gift of your time. And in saying that, let us go ahead and jump into Sacred Scripture. If you have your Bibles out there, we are going to do something a bit different today in that we are going to spend some time in the second reading, which uh, typically has us in Paul's epistles. Again, this second reading comes to us from Galatians 2, Galatians 2, verse 16 and verses 19 to 21. So if you want to flip your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and then verses 19 to 21. There we read this. Yet who know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Dropping down here. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died to no purpose. Okay, what is meant by the word justified. Huh? What is meant by the word justified? Well, if you take a closer look at that word, it is a Greek word that means to acquit huh? or vindicate or pronounce righteous. 
It is a word that is used 15 times in Romans and 24 times in the rest of the New Testament. So it is a word that is used 39 times in the New Testament. It can describe, on one hand, how men make themselves out to be righteous, or on another hand, how men verbally acknowledge the righteousness of God. Okay, so in a legal context, a judge justifies the innocent when he acquits them of unproven charges. Now, great theological significance is attached to this term when God is the one who justifies, especially in Paul's writings, because in Paul's writings, he describes how God establishes man in a right covenant relationship with himself. And so many ways to talk about the justified is to talk about covenant relationship with God. This, of course, was made possible by what? Well, the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ, which frees us from our sin and through the free gift of grace. This is what St. Paul emphasizes. And this grace is received by faith in the liturgical context of baptism. Again, this is what St. Paul emphasizes. So when God acquits the sinner, what is he doing? He is also adopting the sinner as one of his own children, making him an heir of eternal life. For Paul, the justifying decree of God affects an inward transformation that makes us holy and righteous in his sight. So justification in the end is about being in relationship with God. Now, why do we talk about that off the top? Because it is in light of that, I think, that we can better understand this whole language of the works of the law. You know, in the history of Catholic scholarship, there has consistently been an identification of the works of the law as the works of the Mosaic law with its ritual ceremonies. Now, what is the theology that underlies this? Well, the theology that underlies this is rich and manifold and certainly has us going back to the Mosaic ceremonies and the Mosaic covenant. To understand it is to understand better, in the end, why Paul pits the works of the law over against faith in Christ. So what are we after here? What are we to understand? Well, the ceremonial laws expressed a theology of separation that is proper to the Old Covenant, to the Old Testament. For centuries, works such as uh, circumcision, uh, food restrictions, observance of the Sabbath, and so on, functioned as badges, if you will, of Israel's election that made the Jews a people distinct from the Gentiles, okay? But when Christ came to gather all nations into the fold of the new covenant, the ceremonial boundaries that divided Israel from the rest of the world were set aside as, as outdated and expired, huh? Why? Well, because the church is an international community that includes Jews but does not exclude Gentiles. The rituals exclusive to Judaism are no longer appropriate for marking out the people of God. Was this not the debate at the First Council in Jerusalem, as we've talked about it before in the past in Acts 15, right? Are you bound to the law of circumcision, the law of the Old Covenant, or baptism, the law of the New Covenant? You see, the Mosaic rituals were ultimately mere shadows of better things to come in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants us to see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. In other words, the ceremonies of the law were signs of grace, but not sacraments of grace, if you will. 
they pointed the way to the benefits we receive in Christ, but they did not confer those benefits, make actual those benefits. So, for example, circumcision of the flesh prefigured the inward grace that transforms the heart in baptism. This is what Paul is after in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11-12, when essentially he's talking about how circumcision passes the baton to baptism. So, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law set the stage for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, which alone affects true remission of sins. Festivals such as Passover likewise prepared Israel to receive the true Lamb of God as holy food. Is this not the stuff of typology, where the old prepares the new and the new illumines the old? All the ceremonies, in one way or another, served a prophetic function that was important in the old economy, in the Old Testament, but was no longer necessary once Christ came and fulfilled what had long ago been foreshadowed. Essentially, my friends, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, and just not the fulfillment, but also the transformation. So, The Mosaic ceremonies, then, were symbolic rituals that taught important lessons about divine grace and the inadequacy of human works. In concert with the Mosaic law as a whole, you know, the the, the ceremonial laws were part of a divine education in humility, a divine education in the need for grace. Uh, Take circumcision, for example. You know, at one level, It is a sign of the righteousness Abraham possessed by faith. At another, it is a reminder that God fulfills his plan by grace rather than human works. Recall that circumcision was given after Abraham had grown impatient and tried to accomplish by his own efforts what only God could do for him by a miracle of grace. Namely, what? (laughs) Give him uh, a son in old age, right? Circumcision, it would seem, was a painful reminder to Abraham of this important lesson. As many theologians of the Old Testament talk about, this is a theology behind circumcision itself. So, likewise, the Sabbath observance was a weekly reminder that man's work, accomplished in six days, must desist and give way to a celebration of God's work on the what? Seventh day. Also, we could say sacrifice had a a pedagogical purpose as well, serving as an ongoing memorial of of human weakness and sin. On the one hand, God instituted sacrifice to express his desire to be forgiving to his wayward people. On the other, by ordering the continuous cycle of offerings under, under the old covenant, what was he doing? He was driving home the point that man is weak and powerless to avoid transgressions by his own strength. And so he stands in need of what? Grace and divine mercy. So all of this helps us to bring Paul's teaching into focus. Far from justifying the sinner, the ceremonial works declare that man is weak and sinful and in desperate need of God's help, right? In effect, they show us our need without meeting our needs. Instead of providing a solution to our problem, They point beyond themselves to the ultimate solution provided by God. 
of course, in the dying and rising of Jesus Christ for our salvation. When you talk about works of the law, what you are talking about in the end is relationship. The law of the Old Testament was about that external relationship. And as we just talked about, it serves a purpose. The law of the new covenant is about the interior relationship, a relationship that is bound in God's grace. Huh? You know, what does the word law mean in Hebrew? It is an archery term that literally translates uh, bullseye, the center. The idea was if you lived according to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, you were going to be drawn to the center. But there was a ceiling to it, right? Because we are not given that grace yet. In the New Covenant, we are made to see that baptism is that law that allows us to go to the center in a new and profound way. And that new and profound way is a matter of the heart. Remember that great passage that comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The only time you read of the New Covenant in the Old Covenant or the New Testament in the Old Testament, right? The prophet Jeremiah says, in the dawn of the Messiah, the law will no longer be written on stone, but inscribed upon the heart. You see, my friends, in the sacrament of baptism, the law is inscribed into the heart. And that law is the law of relationship. Why does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and following, that you did not receive the spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship in which you cry, what? Abba, Father. He's talking about baptism. The cry, Abba, Father, is the new law. This is the beauty of the New Testament, that we've been given this gift of grace to cry, Abba, Father. Incidentally, the Greek word for sin, hamartsia, hamartsia, it literally translates to miss the mark. If the Hebrew word for law is ultimately to strike bullseye, well, what is to miss the mark? Sin. Sin is about relationship. Sin is about breaking the Father's heart. Sin is about missing the mark. So we want to live in the heart of God, ultimately striking bullseye. What Paul wants us to see is that we are no longer bound to the old law, to the external law. No, no, we are now bound to the, to the new law, this law of grace, this new law which has us crying, Abba, Father, which sets up, my dear friends, <laughs> the gospel passage for us today. Because what we have in our passage is essentially a juxtaposition between that law that is written on stone and the new law that is written on the heart. What do I mean? Well, pay close attention. Again, this is our gospel passage for this Sunday. It comes to us from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was sitting at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, 
and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, What is it, teacher? A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he forgave them both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose to whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So what is going on here? Well, the host is a well-known Pharisee, right? That is to say, he is a strictly practicing Jew, the kind of Jew that we were just talking about, the kind of Jew that was very much bound to following the letter of the law, if we are going to put it that way. Now, he has personally invited Jesus to his banquet, even though the Pharisees, pious people who, who carefully keep the law, had a good many bones to pick with Jesus, right? Indeed, uh, some of them so radically rejected him that a few were even plotting to bring about his death, as Matthew chapter 26, verse 4 reminds us, huh? Simon the Pharisee here seems nonetheless to have felt a certain sympathy with Jesus. Otherwise, he would not have invited him to uh, his house. Even in this question, what is it, teacher? He is listening. He is listening as a pupil. He is the student, okay, to Master Raboni here. So there they are, lying around the table. The meal has started. Then a woman who is regarded in the town as a sinner pushes her way in. Huh? Now, what was her sin? Uh, Luke, the gospel writer here, does not say but everyone kind of has his own idea of this, you know, that kind of sinner. Ultimately, back then, certainly this would have been the talk about those who sin against the sixth commandment. Now, what this sinner does next is shocking to everyone there, huh? Even for our own indifferent age, when there are no more taboos, her behavior is offensive. I mean, if you can just imagine yourself being there 2,000 years ago, what would that look like? Enter into that classic Ignatian exercise. Were you bumped by a Jew? Or maybe did this woman, this sinner, 
push you aside because she was so focused on the person of Jesus Christ. So she comes up to Jesus from behind. And as he was lying back with his feet bare, she brings to him what? Expensive oil with her. In the heat of the east, something that is important because um, it would have been important for one's skin, and it does a great deal of good. Above all, however, there is a flood of tears. She weeps and she weeps. And do we not know of Christ's mercy? Do we not know of how Christ desires to enter into the misery of another, into the brokenness of another, into the hurt of another, into the guilt of another. This is mercy, huh? This is mercy. So her tears run down over our Lord's feet, and Jesus lets it happen. This is what is so radical, right? He lets it happen. This woman who has sinned is not repugnant to him, as she is to everyone else. And he does not repulse her when she touches him, as everyone else would have. He does not stop her when she dries his feet with her long hair, as everyone else would have. The Pharisees might have been thinking to themselves, perhaps Jesus has no idea uh, who this woman is. But you and I both know, my friends, Jesus does know. And he knows, too, what Simon and the others are thinking to themselves in that imagination in which many erotic things find a place. For our Lord, it is not a matter of eroticism, but a manner of fulfilling a desire, a different kind of desire, a desire that is not reduced to eros, that physical human love, but one that is fulfilled in agape, that sacrificial divine love, the love that concerns itself with mercy. Simon is given perhaps the most important lesson of his life, and we too along with him, if we listen and open our hearts. Simon and all of you who are constantly judging other people just finally understand something, huh? <laughs> Love is all that counts in life, real, genuine love, which knows that I too have been forgiven an infinite number of things, even if I have not become a prostitute, a whore, have not murdered anyone, have not become a thief or a robber. This is not because I am so much better than whores or robbers, but because God has been so gracious to me and he has kept me from it. What did St. Philip Neri say on one occasion? when he was watching dead bodies wash downstream. But for the grace of God, go I. But for the grace of God, go I. You know, we have that tendency to look down on other people, to look at certain sins and say, I am so much greater than that. But the virtue of humility never says that. The virtue of humility looks in the mirror and echoes the great G.K. Chesterton, when he was once asked, what's wrong with the world? I am. We are to say, I am. I am what is wrong with the world. I am a sinner. I need to repent. I need to be a better version of who God is calling me to be, right? Now, am I saying that all sin is equal, 
that there's no such thing as venial sin or grave sin. No, I'm not saying that at all. But the tendency to look at certain sins and say, I am so much of a better person is absolute failure in our Christian life. We have to go back to Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5 here, right? What does he say? He says, do not judge. Now, remember, when he says do not judge, he's not saying never judge what is objectively wrong, because what is objective is external revealed. We make judgments upon what we can judge properly all the time. He's saying do not condemn the heart. And if you are to judge, and when you judge, make sure that you pull the plank out of your own eye, right? Make sure you slowly take the boulder out of your own eye. Then you will be able to chasten as you ought with a great deal of gentleness and reverence. Have we not said that gentleness and reverence, as St. Peter and St. Paul talk about it, are the virtues by which truth shall pass, are the virtues by which our fraternal correction shall pass? The only way we build that bridge is if we first look in the mirror, is if we first take a long look in the mirror and examine our conscience, examine our own failures, because it is only then that we will begin to appreciate the why behind fraternal correction, not something caught up in spiritual pride, but something caught up in what is going to serve the greater good, the body of Christ. My dear friends, the message that comes to us this 11th Sunday of ordinary time, as we reflect into justification, the works of the law, and this gospel is, don't be so caught up with the letter of the law that we forget the spirit of the law, the heart of the law. Once you enter into the heart of the law, it will illuminate the letter of the law, right? And only then will we begin to be the Christian that we need to be. This is what lies at the heart of our faith. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.